Hello? <laughs> First service, the screen didn't work. Second service, the mic doesn't work. I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus Christ, <laughs> the Lord. <laughs> you guys applauding at the end of a video that says tribulation in it is the most Christian thing that I have seen all week, and I am here for it. Because Christians understand that although the world is getting worse, and it's going to continue to get worse, not only in general, but for us. We know that the victory has already been won, and we have a roadmap to the end of the universe, which is the book of Revelation, and that's why we're not stressed out, that's why we're not worried, that's why we're not afraid. I was watching a video last night, Russia might invade Ukraine, I'm like, okay, let's go Jesus, come on, come back. Wars and rumors of wars, that's what you said, right? That's kind of what I'm hearing lately, you know? I'm ready for it. I don't even need to do this sermon. I'm ready for Jesus to come back right now. I would happily, <laughs> I can give you my notes in heaven if you still care about them, which you, you wouldn't. You'd be like, no, I'm good, I've got the real thing. Um, <laughs> we're studying the book of Revelation. And has anybody been feeling lately like it seems like the end is coming? No? Uh, I, I do, but then I think, you know, if I was a Christian from 1941 to 1945, I certainly would have thought the end was coming then. It kind of goes in waves like that. What we do want to know is what does the Bible teach us about what is to come and how can we be emotionally and spiritually prepared? That's why God has blessed us with the book of Revelation. That's what we're studying in this series. So, I called this the most complicated sermon of all time. No? I wrote this down. Jesus is definitely coming back on July 3rd, 2027. No, that's a, that's a red flag. If you ever are listening to any End Times content and a person says something like that, that's your cue. Just kind of get out of there, you know, just walk out or close the tab. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour that he'll be returning. So if anyone claims to know more about the return of Jesus than Jesus himself, then you know that you're in the wrong spot. We're talking about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is extremely complicated. We're doing more of a teaching series than we are a preaching series. So I hope you got your thinking cap on. I hope you're ready to learn some things. Revelation is structured around seven sevens. 
what that means is seven times in the book of Revelation, there is a grouping of seven things. The numbers are significant. Seven in the Bible means complete. Seven days in a week, complete. It is a picture of the completeness of what God has created. And in Revelation, we see seven churches, then seven seals. That's what we're going to be looking at today, chapters 6 and 7. We see seven trumpets, seven people, which is the most terrifying part of Revelation is this chapters 11 through 15. If you like horror movies and you haven't read Revelation 11 through 15, then you're doing it wrong. You should definitely read this, it's terrifying. And then we get to the seven bulls, the seven dooms, and the seven wonders. So Revelation is structured in this way, but keep in mind there are more allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than in the entire rest of the New Testament combined. Revelation is a culmination of the entire Bible, alluding to the entire Bible and giving us what's left and what is to come. But here's the thing. People read Revelation and it makes them scared. People read Revelation, it makes them worried. If that is the way you're reading it, you're doing it wrong. Revelation was written so that you would have hope. I wrote this down. As Christians, our collective trajectory is glory and safety and unity with each other and Christ. This is an underlying belief of the entire Bible, and if you believe this, which you should, then you will be able to read and understand Revelation correctly. You must believe and understand that God loves you, has a plan, and will keep you safe for you to understand how all of this terrifying stuff that is going to come can cause you not to feel afraid, but to lean in and have hope. Does that make sense? Okay, so we talked about seven sevens. Now, anyone want it to get more complicated? No? You can respond to me, I'm a real person. <laughs> um, 50 is a big number in the Bible. Seven sevens leads us to 49. At the end of 49, all that's left, I wrote this down. After it all, at the end of the end, when the film strip of existence runs out, there's Jesus. When everything meaningless in this world has run out of gas, space, energy, and time, there's one guy standing there, and we who believed will be with him as he completes his mission of restoring the world back to his father, back to perfection, back to Eden. In the Old Testament, the, word, the number 50 was a number of jubilee, a number of completion at the end of the route of seven cycles of completion. At the completion of completion, they would set all slaves free, they would restore all land to its original owners, and they would give everything back to the person who it was meant to be. Jesus, in Revelation, is the completion of completions, the jubilee of jubilees, the bullseye on the dartboard of reality and life and existence itself. Now, here's the thing. I think the reason why people don't always teach on Revelation at a weekend service is because it's pretty complicated. And I know uh, what happens when you try to do this in a room this big. People are like, Pastor, it's, it's just, I like it, but it's just so hard to understand. Pastor, can, Pastor, can you preach on John 3.16 again? 
Pastor, I've got my coffee, and I just want you to tell me that Jesus loves me this morning. Um, he does love you 100%. And the world is also rapidly getting worse, and he wants you to have hope. That's why we study this. And also, the Bible is very complicated. Like, you guys understand that, right? You know what's weird? is people accept complication in every tier and place of fandom. They do. They love complicated things. Like, I'm a Lord of the Rings guy, and Amazon just announced this new Lord of the Rings television show, which uh, has been uh, rolling for about five years. They paid $250 million to the Tolkien estate to write Lord of the Rings on a piece of paper. Then they paid $250 million to produce the first season of the show, of which there's going to be five seasons, of which none of which takes place in any of the thousand years of which the Lord of the Rings series was made. All of it takes place in what is called the second age, which is a different part, which is a part where only some of the characters are because some of the characters are immortal, which means they will be in this even though they were in the originals, even though it doesn't make sense. And answer me this, answer me this. Why do people love that? But when it comes to the complicating factors of the Bible, they're like, it's pretty hard to understand. Why is it that people spend more time understanding the interrelations between like 27 Marvel movies than they are willing to understand the complications of the Bible? I don't get it and I, 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 don't, I don't like it. We have better source material and everyone understands that for something that is that, that requires that level of fandom, there is also a level of complication. You never hear a Star Trek fan saying it's too complicated they're just learning. People need to understand if you're a Christian, the Bible is extremely complicated and much more rewarding to understand than many of the things that require that level of fandom. So today we're talking about the tribulation. We're gonna be talking about two things that the Bible teaches in Revelation 6 and 7. We're gonna be talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we're gonna be talking about this idea of 144,000 people. Those are two concepts that are in Revelation 6 and 7. I'm gonna unpack those for you. I'm gonna teach you what they mean, and hopefully they're gonna bless you. And then we're gonna spend the rest of the time talking about how amazing Jesus is and the hope that we have coming in heaven. Does this sound good? Um, the, absolutely, one guy is excited. Um, I like that. I like that. Okay, so if you want to open it, your Bible, you can open it to Revelation 6 and 7. We're going to be reading a bunch of the verses in chapter 7. Or if you want, you can just stick with me and I'll tour guide you through the whole thing. So those two things, again, are the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the number of people, 144,000. So the tribulation is a period of time. Some people see it as a seven-year period coming from a prophecy in the book of Daniel. Other people see it as having started after the ascension of Christ. Regardless of the framework that you apply to the Bible, we know that the things that the Bible says about this period are true. And so what we see here are two things that are going to happen during the tribulation. The first one is these four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is a painting from Albrecht Dürer, a German painter from 1498. It was on um, display at the Museum of Metropolitan Art 
in New York in the 1990s. And in 1498, he painted a picture of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, there's another one that I'm going to show you that I like even more. This is a painting by a guy named Victor Vaznyskov, and he painted this in 1887. And he painted what he read in Revelation 6, which is what the Apostle John saw in a vision, which is these four horsemen. So let's go through them. The first horseman, it says, was on a white horse. He had a crown on his head and a bow, and it says that he went out to conquer. Now, some people read that and they're like, that's Jesus, but, but it's not. It's not Jesus. These are, um, these are not good things. These are bad things that are coming to the world. I see uh, the first horseman as the Antichrist. He's here to conquer the world. And remember, the Antichrist is the opposite of Christ. The Bible says two different things about that. First, the Bible says that there are Antichrists, plural, meaning there are groupings of people and individual people that are going to come that are going to be the opposite of what Jesus is. Jesus is gentle. They are going to use strength for their own benefit. Jesus is calm, patient, and wise. They are going to be um, impatient and foolish. Then there is a specific antichrist, which is a specific person who is Satan's attempt to send a Messiah into the world. That's who the first horseman is. He's gonna come and he's gonna come out and he's gonna conquer. The second horseman uh, is on a red horse and it says that he has taken peace and the red horseman, or the red horse rather, symbolizes war. So there is an antichrist coming and then there is war coming and it's gonna be awful. Um, Jesus said, like I referenced earlier, that there would be wars and rumors of wars. And I, tell, I can tell you, if you read the news or if you go on the internet, that's exactly what's happening right now. That doesn't mean Jesus is coming back in the next couple of weeks, but I certainly hope that it does. The third horseman is a black horse. This one's the most interesting of the three to me. And on it is a person holding a scale, like justice. Get this. This is what the third horseman says. He says out loud, a quart of wheat for a denarius, which doesn't sound that interesting unless you know what it means. A denarius is a day's wage. The average person in America makes $50,000 a year, and the average work year is 260 days. That means that the average worker takes home about $200 gross from one day of work. So he's saying a quart of wheat for a denarius, a quart of wheat for a, for $200. Now a quart of wheat, um, a, a gallon of wheat is about one pound of wheat and 50 pounds of wheat sells for about $12. So a quart of wheat right now would cost you about 25 cents. So do you get what he's saying? Famine is so bad Inflation is so bad that people are gonna pay $200 for something that costs and is worth 25 cents. There will be so little that people are going to pay exorbitantly large prices for incredibly small amounts of things. And we've already seen this on a minor level with people paying exorbitant amounts of money for hand sanitizer and toilet paper. 
We see society and we know that this type of thing can happen. When people start freaking out, they're gonna start grabbing a handful of wheat and throwing $100 bills out because there's so little food to go around. The fourth horse is a pale horse and it says the rider on him was named Death. Aren't you glad you came to an encouraging service this morning? So what this means is these people are coming. They're not real people. Well, the first one is the rest of them are pictures of what is happening and going to happen in the world. The world is going to continue to get worse. God loves the world and God hates sin and God will not stand for the sin that's in the world. He is going to come and righteously judge the world. And all of us who observe it will say, well done, that is great. And these are some of the ways that God is going to allow the world to be judged with an antichrist who conquers, with war, with famine and inflation, and then with death. And regardless of your political opinion, we have seen that on a minor level in the past few years. Imagine that times 100. That is what is coming. But if you look at this and feel afraid, you're doing it wrong. Because we won't even be here when the majority of stuff like this happens. We're already going to be taken out. In fact, I don't know of a single serious scholar of the Bible who believes that the church of Jesus Christ will have to endure all of God's wrath. I don't know a single person who studies the Bible who believes that. So we will be taken out, we will be with Christ, and we will be watching as all of this happens. So those are the four horsemen that is coming, that is uh, potentially already even um, starting now. And then we have this idea of the 144,000. That's in Revelation 7. Um, the 141,000 is uh, said in Revelation 7 that it's 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is fairly complex, so if you'll stick with me for a second, some people see this as a representation of 12,000 saints from each of the tribes of Israel, that 12,000 people during the tri tribulation from each of the original 12 tribes of Israel will get saved. It'll add up to 144,000. Um, that's not the way I see it, and I'll tell you why. Um, First of all, I wanna tell you though what Jehovah's Witnesses believe about this because it's a bit funny, um, if you'll allow me to. Jehovah's Witnesses read uh, Revelation chapter seven and the official teaching of that church is that that is the total amount of people that will be going to heaven. Uh, only 144,000 people total, which is pretty rough because there are 8.7 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world today. Um, <laughs> So if you can imagine sitting in church and competing for the spots that are very limited and are mostly filled by dead saints. Um, I'm not saying that you should be mean to a Jehovah's Witness if they come to your door. You definitely shouldn't. But if you say that, I would imagine they probably wouldn't stay for very long. Now onto what this actually represents. Stick with me here for a sec. Here's three reasons why the 144,000 are the church of Jesus Christ and not exclusively Israel. It's not the sum total of the church, it's a representation of the church and the people who get saved during the tribulation. 
Uh, here's three reasons. The, number one, the church in Revelation is portrayed as the new Israel. There's a bunch of references for that. If you'd like to take a picture and look that up and study that this week, I think that'd be worth your time. The second reason is that the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Israel. This is a very significant point. It's not a point that everyone agrees with, but if you read and study Romans 9, 24 to 26, and the rest of the passages I have here, you'll see that, in my opinion, in the opinion of many scholars, that is uh, what the church represents um, and what the church is. And third, the names of places in Revelation are not literal. Revelation continues to reference the city of Sodom. That's a city that was destroyed in the Old Testament, if you remember the whole pillar of salt thing. So we see by studying the book of Revelation that the names of things are not always indicators of what they are. They are pictures and representations of what they are. So what is the 144,000? The 141,000 is a grouping of people who get saved during the tribulation, and they are people who God calls out. He didn't call them out now, but he calls them to himself then. There's still hope for people. If you have a friend or a brother or a sister who doesn't know Christ, and God raptures his church, God takes us away, and God leads us uh, into heaven, there is still hope for those people. Many people will be awakened by those things and will get saved during those times. That's what the 144,000 is. Now let's look at what it says in Revelation chapter seven. Here's where I wanted to land together. I love this passage. This is a picture of heaven. If you read about the four horsemen or the 144,000 or the great harlot of Babylon or all the cool things that are in Revelation and it causes you to feel afraid, you're doing it wrong. Revelation was written that you would have hope. And here at the end of chapter seven, we have a picture, a vision of heaven. God gave the apostle John a vision of heaven so that you would be able to have it so that you would have hope in what is to come so that you would walk through your life, not in fear of war, not in fear of famine, not in fear of inflation, not in fear of disease, not in fear of infection or virus or misfortune, but that you would walk through life with hope because you know what is coming for you. And you know and believe that by the time you're standing with Christ, everything that's happened in this world will feel like a boring section of credits at the beginning of the most wonderful film that you have ever seen. And we get that vision here in Revelation chapter seven. Let's look and study this together. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. This is what heaven's gonna be like. Heaven is a collection of all types of people from all types of nations, from all types of people groups that spoke all different kinds of languages and lived completely differently together. And they're not fixated anymore on who they are. They're fixated on who Jesus is. Look at what it says, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They're standing before the lamb. They're looking at Jesus Christ and, and they're clothed in white robes. Notice, they're all different kinds of people, but they're dressed the same and they are looking at the same thing. What a beautiful picture of the unity of the body of Christ. And they have palm branches in their hands, which is an awesome picture of when Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem and people yelled, Hosanna, as he was riding in on a donkey. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, in unison, all of the people of God, 
from different places, born in different places, different economic statuses, different races and languages, but they are dressed the same, looking at the same thing and saying the same thing. They're saying salvation belongs to God. They're saying the only way to get saved was God. The only way to be redeemed was Jesus. The only way to get to heaven is Jesus. The only way to be saved is Jesus. He's sitting on a throne. They're singing to him. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? It's kind of like a little facetious way of saying, hey, John, do you know who these people are? John, the person seeing the vision, says, sir, you know. He's like, what do you mean? You're in heaven, man. Tell me. Don't ask me. I just got here. John's like, you tell me, you elder. Come on, help me out here. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That's what we've already been talking about. They were saved. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These people have learned the greatest thing in the universe, which is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can slip up, trip up, screw up, and mess up, and you can be made clean and redeemed again. And that the only substance, I got like three more minutes on this, you can't clap yet. Um, (laughs) And that the only substance that can bring about that redemption is the blood of Jesus, the most valuable thing in the universe that no matter who you are and what you've done, they have discovered this truth and they are going to spend eternity singing about it gladly and joyfully, that I was a sinner and Jesus Christ's blood made me clean and whole again, and that heaven isn't full of a bunch of people who were perfect and awesome and never got mad at their kids and never struggled with finances and never worried when they were watching the news. Rather, it's the opposite, that heaven is full of a bunch of misfits and people who've screwed up and slipped up and tripped up, people who are the worst people in the world, people who uh, are complete and total sinners, adulterers, pornographers, murderers, and thieves, drug addicts, greedy businessmen, hookers, liars, and cowards. And, And they were called by the grace of Jesus to see that their sin could no longer define them, that they could be set free and redeemed, set uh, in motion towards the kingdom of God, and the only way to be free from their horrible past, from my horrible past, from your horrible past, is in and through the blood of Jesus. Then they get to spend all of eternity with all of the people who know and treasure that truth, singing about it, talking about it, meditating on it, and recognizing I am so blessed that God would have chosen me to be a part of his team. 
I'm so thankful for the ways that I've messed up in my life because they showed me my great need for a savior. And when I look at myself, when you look at yourself in heaven, you're not gonna see your sin anymore. It won't matter anymore. It's all bought and paid for and you will forever be filled with the deepest joy and gratitude that you got to know Jesus, that you got to be called by Jesus, that you got to live for Jesus. And every moment of every day, you'll be like, I can't believe this is my life. I'm so happy. And there's, and there's more really good stuff. It says, therefore, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. Some people think that heaven will be boring, but it won't be boring. You will be, um, how can I explain this? You, you will never feel bored in heaven. Imagine yourself and you have returned to a complete state of innocence like a child, but your intellectual capacity has been completely maxed with knowing who God is the most innocent version of yourself and all of the knowledge of God. When you're in that state, when you're in your perfected state, the idea of serving Jesus and being with him every day will sound as magnificent to you as it actually functionally is. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. You'll never be alone. You'll never feel alone. You'll never worry because you will be sheltered with the presence of Christ and they will hunger no more. They won't thirst no more. No more of the daily pains of earth. Where am I gonna get lunch? How am I gonna finish work so that I can eat? How am I gonna afford enough food for my kids? All of those feelings and frustrations, gone. The sun won't strike them, nor any scorching heat, which is every Phoenix person's favorite verse. No more 112 degree July and August days in heaven. No more July and August in heaven. None of that. For the lamb will be in the midst of the throne. Jesus Christ in the middle of everything where he belongs. And he will be their shepherd. He will lead us and guide us and teach us how to live in heaven. He will guide them, that's you, to springs of living water. Living water in the Bible is a representation of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me in John 5, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says right there, that was a, a picture of the Holy Spirit. The same John that wrote that wrote this. He will lead you to springs of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine drinking so deeply of the Spirit of Christ and it just never stops flowing? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
more crime, no more frustration, no more fear, no more pain. That's the heaven that Revelation talks about. That's the heaven that's coming for each person of Christ. And if you're reading Revelation and you get scared, or if you're watching the news and you get scared, as a Christian, you're doing it wrong. Jesus Christ gave you this content so that you would live with hope. And that hope that you have is what you can offer to the world to show them Christ. When everyone else is stir crazy and wild and scared, you can stand firm and strong because of the hope that is in you. That's what you have to offer your neighbors and coworkers, not a system of behavioral modification to appease an angry God, but a real friend who's offered you a real hope and told you the end so that you wouldn't struggle in the middle. Revelation tells you the end so that you won't have to struggle in the middle. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the great hope of Christ. Would you fill up our hearts once again with your hope? Would you allow us to drink from streams of living water even now? Would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit today? I pray that we would live in and from that hope. I pray that we would not live from fear. I pray that we would not live from anger or aggression. I pray that we would not live from news article to news article or from swipe to swipe or scroll to scroll. We would live from hope and the hope that we know the person who wins. That the person who wrote this book, the person who wins all of it, that we know that person and we know that we win with him and we need not be afraid. I pray that you would give us that hope and bless us with it now in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you are looking to pray with someone, we have some incredible people who would love to do that with you up front. Or if you would just like to text PRAY to 21999, sorry, PRAYER to 21999. We as a staff love to pray over those prayer requests. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day.